talking again. Pull him. Take him with you. Serge, we'll, we'll pray for you to get back, my friend. That's our new Sunday school teacher now. We're super excited about today. We're going to continue on with our Grow uh, series. This is uh, nine weeks in the fruit of the Spirit, and this week we are in the fruit of joy. Joy is uh, something that can be hard to come by in our society, and so that's where we're going to sit today. As a, a way of introduction, uh, some of you know this, many of you don't. I was once uh, a missionary in South Africa in 2000, early 2000s, I don't remember. I graduated college and I moved to South Africa for a year. I lived in Johannesburg, city of about 10 million, um, crazy modern city on one hand and desperately poor and dangerous on another. Uh, and so lived there for a year, came home, met my wife, uh, took her on a two-week trip. She got the bug. After we were married, we went back and spent another year there together. All of that to say, there are certain things you miss when you're far from home. Uh, my first time through, somebody was sweet to me and decided that as a first-time missionary, they would send me a little care package of home. And what they had done in 2003, 2004, maybe, is they, they got one of these black rectangles. If you're under 30, these are called VHS tapes, okay? And they took this black rectangle filled with magnetic tape and they put it into their uh, video cassette recorder. We called that a VCR. And what they did is they recorded the Super Bowl for me because lacking internet or any uh, television, I had no idea what was going on. And is there a more perfect consumer event in America than the Super Bowl? It is the most culturally us thing we have, not because of the game, although the game is a thing, but because of the like 17 hours worth of commercials, Right. So I got prepared for this. They told me it was coming. It was on the way. It was on the boat. It'll be here in six months, right? And so I get excited about getting the Super Bowl. I find a VCR somewhere in this little church. I put it up in a room. I got myself some uh, potato chips. They called them crisps. I didn't argue. And then I got a can of Coca-Cola, real cane sugar. I was so ready. That tape showed up. I got my stuff. I sat down after church one day. Everybody was gone. And I said, I am watching the Super Bowl. Wasn't going to have a party, right? It's just me. I invited people to come. They looked at me funny like, what is he talking about this bowl? Let's hurry up and get out of the way. And so I put in this tape. I'm super excited. I'm eating my chips. I'm drinking my Coke. I think I am an American. I am so strong. And the pregame show is on. And who doesn't love a good pregame show? I said, you know what? I got all day. I'm going to watch the whole pregame show. And I'm watching this pregame show. And Matt Lauer is talking to Katie Couric, who's talking to who knows who. And I don't care. I'm just watching. And then the little clock in the corner of the screen is ticking down. It's like countdown to kickoff or something like that. And down it goes. And I'm, I feel myself actually, I'm a little bit ashamed, right? I'm like, I'm excited for this. I don't even know who won, right? Because before the internet was everywhere, I have no idea. And here goes the clock to zero. And I'm like, Lord, you know, this is hard, this life, but this is okay. I'm doing all right. And the screen goes black and it comes back up. And a man in a suit says, hi, I'm Stone Phillips, and welcome to a very special four-hour edition of Dateline NBC. And I said, what now? The game's on Fox, and they recorded NBC. You see, back in the day, multiple channels had pregame shows because they knew that's all anybody was watching anyway. And so my parents, in their great, wondrous joy because they'll listen to this, and I can't call them names publicly. They recorded the wrong station. And I slumped in my chair, 
And I dropped my chips and I swore at Stone Phillips. <laughs> and I thought, this is not going to work. You can't have a Super Bowl party without Super Bowl. It was essential to making that work. It was so clear to me, this is an essential part of a Super Bowl party. You have to have the Super Bowl. And I had a very special four-hour edition of Dateline. The same is true in the Christian life. Joy is the essential component. Otherwise, it's not the Christian life. Joy is an essential in the Christian life. And so I'm going to read in John 16, uh, verse 19. It says, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. And so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more? And then after a little while you'll, you'll see me again? Verse 20, it says, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, underline this, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you, now, Jesus is telling his followers, is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice, that word again, and no no one will take away your joy. In that day, you'll no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. And yet ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Jesus is uh, foreshadowing his death and his resurrection for his followers. And he uses a really interesting metaphor. He uses a, a, a labor metaphor, a woman delivering child metaphor. And we'll come back to that. And what he says, importantly, is that no one will take away your joy. And then he says, nearness, basically, nearness brings joy. So we go, well, where does joy come from? Nearness to Jesus brings joy. There's these two kind of realities that we live in. As a new believer, if you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, you've had this moment where you've prayed and you said, God, I I surrender. I can't do this anymore. I need you. There is this infusion of fresh joy when the weight of sin is lifted off of you and you feel for once, I got this. There's a fresh joy. And some of you, it's happened recently enough, you remember? Others of you, it's so long ago. And yet somewhere within you, you go, you know what? I kind of remember that. That mountaintop experience of feeling fresh and new and joyful and hopeful again. Jesus comes not only to give us the freshness of new joy, but the fullness of complete joy. And so we'll soon learn that complete joy is only found in his presence. John 15, back up a chapter, verse 9. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Remain. We talked about this last week. Abide. Remain. Stay with me. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's command. I've told you this, so that why? So that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. And so abiding, this nearness, this remaining with God, this presence of God, is what brings us joy. And so the question today becomes, do you lack that? If you were honest with yourself, if you asked your best friends, hey, am I an overwhelmingly joyful person? Yeah, I know what mine would say. Sometimes. 
that, well, that one time, like six months ago, you were, you were joy. Are you in a season where you lack joy? And then the other side of that coin is, are you abiding in Christ? Are you near to God? Because it's essential. What people will typically tell me when I ask them if they are joyful, they say, you don't know what I'm going through right now. Yeah, joy might be great for you, but you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know my life. You don't know what I'm dealing with. And that's a good response, I think. Because joy is easy in the good times, isn't it? There's no training needed. You don't have to train a child to be joyful. They find joy on their own. But how do we have joy in life's down seasons? How do we have joy when the circumstances should point to something else? Because we say it often enough around here, everybody is in a battle. Everybody is fighting a fight here. Some of them are large, life existential crisis. And some of them are small and hidden and nobody knows it but you, but it's still your battle. So how do you have joy in the circumstances that would say, you got none of this? And then how do you have true joy? Because there's this other thing we won't even get into. There's a false joy in Christianity that we also have to kind of war against. There's a everything is okay and the outside is, is, is all good. I'm going to present the best. And no, never let them see you sweat. And that false joy is more dangerous than a lack of joy because that would communicate to a non-believer that once you become a Christian, problems don't come. And so one of the values that we hold dear is authenticity. Is this thing that, hey, when life goes wrong, it goes wrong. And we've all been there. And so false joy is almost worse than no joy. But how do we have joy in the circumstances? Paul addresses this in Romans. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast, it's an important word, we boast in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, Paul says, will anyone die for a righteous person? You know what? Though for a good that some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've been justified in his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, so, but we also, that word again, boast. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says this. He says, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm, however, for the patient acquisition of virtue. There is little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. What Eugene Peterson is observing is that we all yearn for a religious experience. Our culture is ripe with it. It's being told about the new Hillsong documentary that came out. It's apparently great. You should go see it. 
And they fill concert halls. They fill arenas. There's 15, 20, 30,000 people show up to watch Hillsong sing songs. There's a great appetite that we have for religious experience, for feeling that high, for knowing what it is to be in the presence of God. But Peterson rightly observes that very few of us have the willingness for the long obedience in the same direction, which is holiness, which means when stuff goes wrong, we stick in there. David Crowder once said, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. And when we think about the circumstances of our lives, that's really the Christian life. Eugene Peterson also said that the Christian life is simply learning how to die. It's learning how to die to yourself and take on more of the Spirit. And so we live in a world that avoids sorrow, a world that avoids suffering, that avoids pain at any cost, a world that avoids depth. And yet, while happiness lives in the shallows, in the next purchase, in the next show, most of us would agree that true joy is only found in the depths. What we have in our society is, I would call them the three P's, Pills, programs, and preoccupations. None of them are wrong. So if you take a pill as part of your daily regiment towards living right, take your pill. If you like to read a self-help book, if you like to enroll in a new program, have your programs. If you like when you leave here to go and turn on a pregame show and watch NFL football, if that's your preoccupation of choice, have that. The problem is, for most of us, pills, programs, and preoccupations are the things we do to mask our pain rather than address it. Rather than address the root cause, we go for something that makes me feel better, for something that makes me think I can be better, or in the case of preoccupations, of distractions, something that will just take my mind off it long enough that maybe something else will pop up. And these things are harmless until they become your direction. So many of us start out with distractions that we think are harmless, and then all of a sudden the distraction is our life. It becomes our direction. And what we should rather do, according to Scripture, is to lean into life's difficult days, not find our way out of the pain, but to lean into the pain. It's counterintuitive, but it's what Paul is saying here. He's saying we rejoice in our suffering because it creates perseverance. What he's saying is the Christian finds joy in suffering. Verse 2, 3, and 11, the, the words boast, I told you about, boast and glory. Those words are poorly translated in our English. The word we should use that we don't use is exult, E-X-U-L-T, which is like saying rejoice but on steroids. So he's saying when I encounter any number of trials, I, I crazy rejoice. You know, when I suffer, I crazy rejoice. I don't. But Paul is saying that's where we should be. Rejoice not because we're masochists and because we want to harm ourselves, but because God is beyond our circumstances. And more importantly, if we have the perspective that Paul has here, we'll see that our circumstances drive us back to God. What he's basically saying in verse 3 is that suffering recenters the soul and ultimately drives us back to true hope. Man, there are enough stories in this room, enough testimonies of people that have been through hard things, that have dealt with suffering, that have dealt with tragedy, that have dealt with um, just life explosions. And there are two directions you can go. 
You run from the pain, you mask the pain, or you lean into the pain. And when you lean into the pain, the thing I hear more often than not from people who've done this is they say, you know what, I would never have asked for that. I've never wished that on my worst enemy. And yet, that drove me back to God in a way I never thought possible. Suffering leads to hope. It drives us back to the center. It's a little bit like being thirsty. Oh, that's good. Mm. Anybody feeling thirsty right now? This is really good. I got an extra. I can see it. Your mouths are starting to water. Wish I had a water. It's really good. Oh, it's fresh. Feeling a little parched? Thinking back to when you had your last sip of fresh, clean water? You want a challenge that is not recommended by your doctor? Go a day without drinking something. And realize how thirsty you become. Go two days without drinking something. And what you'll find is you now have a life that rather than consumed with your emails and this relationship and your Facebook status, you will have a life that is consumed with finding water. The thing that you once take for granted when removed from your life becomes an all-consuming desire once it's missing. The reality is true thirst focuses you back on your need for water. Something you take for granted now becomes forefront in your mind. The same is true for suffering. When you're in the midst of it, it forces you back on your need for a Savior. When you see the ultimate in brokenness in the world, when you see the ultimate in hurt and pain in the world, when thirst comes, what you naturally are inclined to look for is what is the thing that solves this thirst? And Jesus is what solves our brokenness. Jesus is what solves our pain. Jesus is what fixes the hurt. And so as we drive deeper into hurt, the only thing that solves it is Christ. And we have pills and programs and preoccupations hoping that maybe one of those things will mask the pain. Jesus' metaphor was labor. I've been in that room. I've been in that room. The last time we did the labor process, uh, my wife started having uh, contractions on a chair in the living room and I saw this happening and I quietly went and got a bag together and put it by the front door. About 15 minutes later, she goes, I think this is it. I think we go get the bag. I'm ready. And I'm like, I got this. I'm a parent now. Like, I'm, I already got one of these. We know what we're doing. And I think I'm way ahead of the game. I got somebody coming over to watch our then three-year-old. I got it. I got it all figured out. The whole plan is in place. I am cool as I can be. And then we get in the car and the screaming starts. Okay. And there's some pain. Is this true? Is this true? Okay. She didn't know I was going to say this. I don't warn her anymore. So on we go the highway, and, and the screaming is getting louder, and, and, and her handprint is being embedded into the little holder on the side of the door there as she um, is letting me and the rest of the highway know that there is some pain happening. We pull up to the hospital, big hospital, and 
San Antonio, and it's, you know, like an eight-story parking garage is where I need to get, and there's one of those uh, real flimsy arms that you have to get your ticket so you can pay them $600 for the right to park and pay them $40,000 for a baby. And there's a guy in front of us that apparently has never used one of these before, and they're complicated machines. You know, it's like that, that stand there, the podium thing with the arm attached to it, and, and there's one big red button on it. That's it. And he's staring at it, and the window starts going down, and she starts leaning out like, oh, she's going to go kill him. <laughs> and she's yelling at him to move, and, and I'm like, do you just want me to ram his car? Is that what you... And I, I tell it calmly now, but this is kind of, I mean, blood pressure was high at the moment. He finally makes his way through. I kind of just pull him to the, we valeted the car. I'd never done that before. That was fun. I just kicked her out, you know, and then threw the keys to the guy, and out we go. I'm in the waiting room. Now I'm doing husband paperwork. And she's in the prep room before she goes to the delivery room. And, and there's a wall between us, but that didn't, that didn't stop much. And I, she didn't like this part of the story, but I kind of chuckled as I'm filling out paperwork and I hear her yelling at people, you know, give me drugs, basically is what she said. <laughs> and the other thing you'll learn about my wife is when she gets really in pain, she just sings. She's like, oh, this hurts. And... Um, it's just what she does. And so I was like, ooh, that's, a, that's pretty, honey. Yeah, she's screaming at the nurses. They wheel her back into the room. We're in there together. And, and, you know, we almost missed the epidural. And so there's pain everywhere. And people are getting those icy stares. And the nurses are doing their thing. And here comes the baby. And then they're screaming. And if you've been in that room, there's some chaos happening. And all of a sudden, here's baby. Catch it like a little football. Put it on the chest. Mom's got Baby. And all of the pain somehow has washed into an overwhelming joy in that room. Ten seconds difference. And suddenly there's no memory of the pain. People are still doing things. Nurses are still working the room. And her eyes are locked onto God's creation on her chest. And there's not a thing in the world that could distract her. And there's not a thing in the world that could remind her of what she just went through because in the moment, there's no pain. The deep pain has melted into overwhelming joy. And here's the reality. The pain isn't gone. Exactly what was happening, all the pain, all the the stuff that creates labor is still in existence. It just doesn't control her anymore because there's a new and a greater thing in its place. That the beauty of joy when it replaces the pain is that the pain doesn't have to be healed completely for the joy to be the primary focus. Jesus uses this as the metaphor for life. He says, there will be a day when I have to go and die. And he's trying to prepare his disciples to understand that you're going to grieve. But guess what? For the hope set before you, I promise your joy will be greater. Your joy will be greater. Your joy will be complete. And so what drives you in those moments of suffering, what should drive us in the moments of great pain and great sorrow, is that there is a hope that is to come. And in those moments, even in the midst of the pain, to know that the suffering creates sanctifying, that we rejoice as we're made more like Jesus. That's why James famously says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face many trials of many kinds. You know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so let perseverance finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. He says that trials drive us back to joy. 
And so are you out there waiting for suffering? Is that the idea? I should just wait and just like, you know, stand in the highway. I'll suffer eventually. No. But in the world we live in, suffering is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. Heartbreak comes. These things are reality. So how do we grow in joy in the midst of this? Hebrews 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and Hebrews 11 is all about the heroes of the faith that have gone on to be with the Lord. Since we're surrounded by these heroes of the faith, these people that have inspired us along the way, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And what? With perseverance, let's run the race marked out for us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the what? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before her, she had nine months with child. Knowing the pain that was to come, for the joy set before her would gladly do it again. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It says, fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What does that mean? In sailing, and if you're a mariner, if you're a boater, if you're a sailor, there's a thing called a waypoint. In the old days, sailor would find a star and he'd sail towards the star. If you're near shore, you can find a point on the shore, the lighthouse, and you can sail at the lighthouse. You can boat towards a certain point. And as you go towards your waypoint, you need to think about nothing else. Because if you can see the lighthouse as a distance on the horizon and you just point at the lighthouse and you keep going that direction and you keep that thing, you fix your eyes on a waypoint, you will inevitably get to the place you're going. The danger is in even being one degree off of a waypoint that's miles away, one degree off of a waypoint of a star. One degree over a long span of time is a long way off center. And so what Paul is saying is as you run the race, as you you are cheered on by these heroes of the faith, fix your eyes on the waypoint that is Christ. One degree off, uh, Jesus is a part of my life, but I'm really more about this right now. In days, weeks, months, years from now, we can't be surprised when we feel like we really missed the mark. Fix your eyes on the waypoint that is Jesus. Maybe you're weary. You don't even know where to look anymore. You say, I couldn't find Jesus as my waypoint if I tried right now. Where is joy then? Where is joy for the Christian today? What do we need to be reminded of to remind us that that waypoint has never strayed from us? It's us from him. Paul instructs us to consider Jesus who endured the cross to set us free. Is there joy in your salvation? We've been told we serve a suffering Savior who did not stay in the grave. Is there joy in his resurrection? We serve a conquering king who promised to make all things new. Is there joy in the future and the healing? We serve a prince of peace who stirs hope and light in the midst of a world awash in darkness. Is there joy left in this world? Where is the joy? 
fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember Christ. As if you went out of town for a few weeks and there was a house guest that came to stay. You had someone to come house sitting. You're going to be out for three or four weeks and so you have this guy you found him on Craigslist because that's the best way to find a house sitter, so do that. And he comes to your home and he's just going to, you know, he's taking the dog for a walk and he's collecting your mail and just making sure the place is still there when you get back. You're gone for a few weeks, you return home and it all worked out, everything seems in place. He smiles, he says, welcome home, I'll be leaving now, here's your mail. Oh, by the way, I, I paid a bill or two for you, just so you know, I, I took care of one or two of your bills, just didn't have anything else to do, I figured I would do that for you. What's your response? Well, you need to know what bill was paid, right? If you paid your 48 cents of your middle school library fines from 40 years ago, well, thanks. I was a conscientious objector to that fine. I'm no longer happy with you. But what if you open the stack of mail and, and you find your mortgage has been paid off in full? Maybe your student loans are gone. Maybe this credit card that, man, had been ballooning for years is, is just, it's zero, and as the door swings closed behind him and he walks out the door, you say, wait, wait, you, you did what for me? And this profound sense of gratitude washes over you as you go, wow. But, but until you knew the cost, you didn't know how to respond. So to consider Jesus when we've lost him is to remember he came into our lives and he paid the heaviest of debts for us. That you and I were bound in chains. You and I were stuck in sin. That you and I were destined for death. And Jesus came in and he said, that bill, I got that. Not because it's no cost to me, but I'll take the cost on for you. And when we remember that, all of a sudden we're floored with gratitude again. All of a sudden we're humbled again to go, gosh, you know what? I forget. I forget. Jesus didn't pay your water bill. Jesus paid the unknowable debt of sin in our lives in full forever. And so when Jesus is at the forefront of our thinking, when he is the waypoint by which we live our lives, joy is sure to follow. In the scriptures, Jesus is shouting at his disciples, stay near. When I feel far, I'm not. Stay near. He tells them, in me, there is hope and there is joy beyond your worst day and your wildest fantasy. Because neither are reflective of reality because you are in my world now and my reality is laid out here. Our world is a parched desert. When it comes to real joy, there is very little of it going around. We skip from shallow pond to shallow pond. And yet the reality is God wants us to have the depth of joy that is so beautiful that others would look upon it and go, that's what I want. You visit a new mother, she has a joy that everybody wants. I remember when we didn't have kids and we'd visit people with new babies. 
I knew the question on the drive home would be, I want one of those. Look how they look. That's reality, and that's all of life. And yet you cannot give away something you don't have. You can't display joy if you don't have it. You can't give water to the thirsty soul down the street or the office hallway unless you have it for yourself. And so let's think about the words of Jesus. Nearness brings joy. And then let our thoughts and our hearts be near to him so that we might be filled with joy and give joy to the world in need. And so what we're going to do, like we did last week, is talk through applications. How do we make this practical in our lives now? Number one is the same as last week's number one. Jesus keeps saying, abide, remain in me, be near to me. And so the challenge is, again, spend time with God in his word in prayer every day. Early in the morning, late at night, you choose what works for you. But that's application one. If you desire joy in your life and you are not spending time with the source of joy, it's fruitless. Application two. Identify the distractions in your life that keep you from having Jesus as your waypoint. You said there's pills and programs and preoccupations, and some of those things are good things, and yet it's really the distractions that get us in our culture. It's those things that are good things, but not God things. They're one degree off things, and all of a sudden we're far from God, and we don't know how. Identify the distractions in your life that keep you from holding Christ as your waypoint. And if you don't know what they are, ask somebody who loves you. Because they'll tell you. Third and final thing is not just having joy, but sharing joy is what is upon us. And so my challenge to you would be in the coming weeks, find one person. One person who needs the joy of Jesus in their life. And start a conversation. If that conversation leads to inviting them to church so they might hear the gospel, that's an easy thing to ask people. People expect you to ask them that. If it leads to you asking about their lives or their family or their hurts or their habits, whatever that is. But I would challenge you to begin thinking right now of who's the one person in your life with whom you are burdened to share joy with. Because I'm new here. And I'm new in town, and I can come up with a half a dozen people I know that don't come here, that are desperate, and that are thirsty for something greater. And so I'm going to take the same challenge, and this week I'm going to walk down the street, and I'm going to have those conversations. Maybe I take brownies as my way in. Hi, I'm new here. Welcome me to the neighborhood. Here I am. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. Or, oh, yeah, I go here. But who is that in your life that needs joy desperately that you are their invitation in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. Father, you endure 